From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed Jesus. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's his voice we want to hear this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that uh, we have this powerful word of yours in our hands and in our own language. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do turn back to Mark chapter 4. We'll be spending the next part of our time together there. And uh, then we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. The Gospel of Mark tells a story that turned the world upside down. The ancient world and the world today. In the first paragraphs of the book, we, we, we discovered Jesus coming and words were spoken of him that are normally reserved for God himself. We had the curtain pulled back to see what's really going on behind the scenes. We saw the majesty of Jesus Christ. The mission of Jesus come to this world and his meekness. And we saw John the Baptist, a voice calling in the desert, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And Jesus announced in chapter 1 verse 14, kind of a, a, a manifesto verse, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so we've got this idea of the kingdom is here. And there's a summons to turn from our old way of life and believe in this good, glad tidings. So the idea of kingdom prompts two questions, uh, two obvious questions immediately, doesn't it? Well, what is this kingdom? And who's the king? And we're learning in Mark's gospel that Jesus Christ is the king, and we're learning what his kingdom is like. He, we've seen him issue this royal summons to repent for the kingdom is near. We've seen him demonstrate supreme authority, authority over the physical world, over sickness and over nature, intellectual authority, authority to teach and wisdom that, that no one had seen before, authority over the spiritual world. He could cast out evil spirits. And we've seen him assert breathtaking claims about himself, very subtly, by claiming that he could forgive sins. He had that authority, that he could redefine what it meant to observe the Sabbath, that holy day. These are divine rights that Jesus has claimed for himself. He's the king. And now here in chapter 4, Jesus is teaching us what his kingdom is like. And he does so by this interesting method called parables. The word parable, our word, has a root that, that actually means a comparison. And a parable compares one thing with another, teaching you what it's like, by saying, it's like, it's like this. And usually parables will use very um, down-to-earth, everyday kind of imagery that people can relate to, to teach you something uh, new, something uh, strange, by comparing it to something very familiar. Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of God using vivid real-life examples. These stories, little stories, are full of wisdom, but they're quite intriguing. They are an invitation to us to reflect deeply. And last week, we, we looked at the first part of this chapter, which is known as the parable of the sower. A man goes out, a farmer goes out to sow seeds. Some people have called it the parable of the soils, because the focus isn't really on the sower, but on the different kinds of soil and how they respond to the same seed. And this one is a key parable because it, Mark 
records the interpretation that Jesus gave to his followers so that we can kind of see the parable and how it works. So you get to lift up the bonnet and look at the engine. And Jesus uh, then is giving us the tools so that we can figure out future parables for ourselves. And let me just encourage you with one thought, which is this. Parables aren't supposed to be straightforward. That's the point. They're not supposed to be easy. I don't recall a Sunday uh, sermon, actually ever, where I've had as many questions and as much feedback as last week. And uh, at first I actually started to worry that I'd confused a lot of people. And that certainly is a possibility. (laughs) You know what they say about the clergy, six days a week invisible, one day a week incomprehensible. (laughs) But I managed to comfort myself with the thought that this is what parables are supposed to do, to get us to ask questions. The whole point of a parable is to make you think. They're an invitation to deep reflection. They don't necessarily yield their wisdom quickly. The parable will open over time like a flower or like a Rubik's Cube. You ever done that? You have to turn it quite a lot of ways to get things to line up. And a fabulous way to do this, by the way, is in community with God's people. And so this week... In the life groups, God willing, we will have opportunity to look at the whole chapter together. And I've even broken a personal record and sent the, the notes last night. Don't expect it every week, guys, just to say that. Um, now, so if you want to join a life group, you're not in one, you would like to be part of that, then go and speak to someone at those orange desks afterwards and they will direct you to a group. So let's open our Bibles, chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 11, Jesus says... The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. So what's the secret? (laughs) What is the secret? Here's the secret. The secret is that the kingdom comes by hearing. The kingdom comes by hearing. That's the secret. He's talking about hearing all through this chapter. The verb to hear occurs loads of times. The kingdom comes only to those who have gone to great lengths to listen. And that implies that this gospel is not something that you simply pick up and do. You must wrestle with it. You must reflect on it. You've just got to think about it carefully until it sinks deep into your heart like seed into soil. Jesus warns us here that it's dangerously possible to think that you understand the gospel when you really don't. The penny has to drop. You may think you get it, but you've only really got it when it's truly penetrated your understanding and touched your heart in a deep way. And Jesus illustrated that, remember, with three kinds of unfruitful soil. The seed that fell on the hard path, the seed that fell on the shallow ground, and the seed that fell in the thorny patch. These three are all different kinds of human responses to God's word that we can miss here with a hard heart. Now, a hard heart could be a person who comes to church every single week, but they don't let the word in, and it doesn't change them. By the way, if you are on your phone at this moment, checking your phone, you're already shutting yourself out of the kingdom. Worth thinking about that, isn't it? That's the hard heart. Then there's the shallow heart. 
The shallow heart actually does respond. This person enjoys aspects of Christianity. Maybe they they were in uh, trouble, they had problems in their life, they came to church or they started listening to something on the internet and they felt this relief and anxiety. There is a God there, somebody cares for me and there's something there. Or maybe they just found the joy of hearing about Jesus and they love it. They love the songs, music's so uplifting, isn't it? But when trouble and difficulty comes, this person just gives it all up. That's That's a shallow heart. Or the third kind is a divided heart. And that's the person who does get the message and does understand it, but as time goes by, as the years go by, and life gets more and more busy and distracted, and there's the cares of property and possessions and the worries of life, they just, it just gets choked out. So there's three different ways we can respond unfruitfully. The way you get inside Jesus' kingdom is by hearing and by carefully reflecting and by accepting that word into your life and letting it shape you. And then you become a person who is extraordinarily fruitful in all the ways that really count. You know, you may want to be successful. I think over the age of 50, most of us give up that idea. But anyway, you may still want to be successful. Good luck to you. You may, you may be quite well off. You might have pretty good resources. Uh, you, may be, you may be beautiful. You might be good-looking. You know, none of those things in the end really count, do they? But character does. The sort of person you are. And every act of service done for Jesus Christ counts. That's fruit that will last. Ordinary people can produce a life that is 100 times what is sown. An extraordinarily fruitful, abundant life. Now, Mark has grouped these parables together here in chapter 4. And the first one, which I've just done a quick recap of, is the sower or the soils. And now there's a few others. And at first sight, it looks a little bit random, like he's just sort of got a bit of a collection together. But these things are carefully, carefully structured, unbelievably carefully structured. The gospel writers are not creating content. They are theological editors who take things that already exist and put them in order so that we can get a theological message. So all of these parables are really about the kingdom. And actually, several of them use the, this agricultural image of a seed. And, and I'm going to go a bit quicker today. I just want to go through these three topics because we're going to come to the Lord's table. The first one is the growing seed. Then there's the mustard seed. Then there's the lamp. The growing seed the mustard seed and the lamp. So the growing seed, verse 26, he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces corn. First the stalk, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And as soon as the corn is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now, this little story is so simple, isn't it? It looks quite innocuous. What's it about? We look at it and we scratch our heads and we think, what is Jesus really getting at here? On one level, this is simply about the inherent power of God's Word. It has power in it. Uh, Although this man has got an important role to play, he's the one that goes and gets the seed and sows it, Really, once it's in the ground, he doesn't have much to do with what happens next, does he? It says he goes to bed, he gets up, he gets on with his day, day and night, night and day, time goes by, seasons go on, and life goes on, and eventually, somehow, he doesn't really know how, this seed, little seed that's gone in there, produces a crop. And if you've ever been through farmland, 
and seen fields full of crops. I mean, it is an amazing thing. Or if you saw Jeremy Clarkson's farm, you would have, you would have learned about the difficulties of farming. But how amazing it is when the, the soil does produce the crop. Somehow, it uses this lovely phrase in verse 28, all by itself. Didn't need much help. It's, the potential is already in there to produce the crop. And that's like God's word. You know, we've got young children, very, very young children, at this end of, other end of the building now, hearing God's word. And let me tell you this. I've seen it for years and years and years, and so have many of you. That word will go into some children's hearts, and they will be changed by it. And really, we don't know how. But the word is powerful. There's also a hint here about patience, isn't there? It doesn't happen overnight. There's uh, a rhythm here. There's a sense of the seasons. First the stalk, and then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear, and eventually the corn is ripe, and he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And now at this point, Mark's readers, who know their Old Testament Bible very well, will, might well pick up their ears, because this is a phrase from the prophet Joel. It's not everyone's favorite book in the Bible, but here's a quote from Joel 3. Let the nations be roused, let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there, God says, I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. So there is an ominous echo that God is going to judge the, the world. In, in truth and righteousness and equity. He will bring in the sickle and the harvest will come. Jesus is hinting here that God will indeed fulfill his promises of restoring the fortunes of Israel, pouring his spirit on them, and he will judge the nations. And by the way, if you, if you are struggling with the concept of God judging the nations, just think, would you be struggling with it so much if you were a Ukrainian Christian today. Absolutely at the mercy of a superpower. Nobody else wants to go and fight with them in case there's a nuclear war. I looked up last night, there may be one and a half million evangelical Christians in Ukraine, our brothers and sisters. Is it right for them to pray, Lord, judge the nations? There's a vision in the Bible of a coming day when God will set things right. And Jesus' contemporaries look forward to that. They want the nations to be judged. But what we're going to find out by the end of the book is that God does restore the restoration of, the, of his people and judge the nations by Jesus taking the judgment upon himself at his cross. So we're going to think about it at the Lord's table in a few minutes. The crop will grow. The harvest will come. Jesus' word has great power, innate in it, inherent in it. Even though its power is hidden and mysterious, it will achieve its purposes. That's the growing seed. Secondly, the mustard seed. You've probably got some of these in your kitchen drawer at home. I've got uh, two kinds because I'm a big fan of cooking curries. And I love black mustard seeds in tarkadal. I'll give you the recipe afterwards if you're interested. Verse 30 to 32, he says, again, what should we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable should we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, proverbially small. He says here, it's the smallest of all the seeds on earth. That might be a bit of an exaggeration, but in that culture, the mustard seed was known as that's the really small seed, and they really are tiny. You can get hundreds of them in one pot. 
They may be about one millimeter in diameter. It takes over 700 of them to weigh one gram. They're so small. But this tiny seed can grow to become a huge plant. A full-grown mustard plant can be over 10 feet tall with really big leaves. And Jesus says in verse 32, it becomes the largest of all the garden plants with such big branches that even birds, wild birds, can perch in the shade and get their little bit of shelter there. What an amazing image from such a small seed. Now that, that image of the birds in the branches, again, echoes parts of the Old Testament which talk about a powerful kingdom that shelters nations. Here's Ezekiel chapter 17. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from the topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. I will plant it and it will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Listen, birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. And Ezekiel was talking about the promise of God's kingdom coming through David, King David's heir. And now great David's greater son, Jesus Christ, tells this story about the mustard seed to illustrate his kingdom. The main point then is astonishing growth comes from tiny, tiny beginnings. You can go to Richmond Park just up the road, and you can see in Richmond Park oak trees that are in some cases 400 years old. And they know this because if you measure the girth of an oak tree, there's a standard measurement you know, that it tends to grow a certain amount every year. 400 years old. There's a, there's a tree in Richmond Park called the King's Oak, which they reckon one of the kings of England sheltered under. Or maybe planted it, I can't remember. The point is, from a small acorn comes a mighty oak. That's our English proverb. From a mustard seed comes a great plant. The amazing thing is there's an organic unity between the seed and the plant. It doesn't change species halfway through. Put it in and it will grow. That little seed has everything in it to become a towering plant. So it is with Jesus' kingdom. Remember who Jesus started out with? Twelve mixed-ability disciples and a ragtag bunch of followers, most of them socially of no, no importance, really. And yet it is enough, he says, to fill and transform the entire world. Is he right? Rodney Stark is an American sociologist, very eminent sociologist. He's written a book called The Rise of Christianity in which he estimated that Christian growth must have occurred at 40% per decade. He thinks that by the year, in the year 100, there were about 7,500 Christians. I don't know how he comes up with these numbers. 150 years later, there was, sorry, 100, year 150, there were still only 40,000 Christians. But by that steady growth, by the year 350, there were 33,882,008 Christians. Of course, this is numbers, but you get the point. And that was 56% of the Roman population, the Roman Empire, in 350 years. Actually, that's 320 years. You see the point. It had it in it, like the seed. 
to grow and fill the world. Jesus' kingdom has, will have massive size, but it starts out small. So 2,000 years on, how is the seed doing? I want to just share a few examples with you because it, we don't see these things in the Western media. And the, the narrative that is constantly being given to us by the mainstream media in this country is that church is declining and dying and fading and there's so many Christ people leave the church every day. Okay, we've heard that. Even that narrative isn't true, by the way. Let me tell you about the world. Brazil. In 1900, there were less than 100,000 Bible-believing Christians in Brazil. By 1990, that's 90 years later, there were 26 million. Africa. In 1900, there were about 8 million Christians in the entire continent of Africa. By the year 2000, there were 375 million African Christians. Just 100 years later. China. The Chinese government tried to kill the church. They kicked all the missionaries out in 1949. They made Christianity illegal. Chairman Mao's wife vowed that they would destroy Christianity so completely that it would only exist in museums. She committed suicide in prison while the church went from strength to strength. In the face of persecution and the absence of workers from outside, the number of Christians grew to about 70 million within 60 years, and some experts estimate about 5 million Chinese people become Christians every year. Jesus is true to his word. Right? There's a lot of talk at the moment about being on the right side of history. Now we know what being on the right side of history is. It's to join the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to hear this in the UK and Europe. We're in one of the places in the world where it isn't going like that. We can worry. We can lose heart. We can fear. And Jesus is saying to us with this parable, don't worry. Don't worry. The future is secure. Remember who your God is and what he's promised and what he's already doing. Realize that this small beginning is a start of God's intended kingdom, the kingdom that will eventually offer shade to the entire world. God is working his purposes out. And my personal belief, uh, this is just me, okay, so you can take or leave it. My personal belief is that we may still be in the days of the early church and that the best is yet to come. So there's a growing seed the word has this potential inherent in it to produce a great crop. There's the mustard plant, the mustard seed. The, the, that small beginning has this astonishing potential to fill the earth. But with these wonderful promises comes a serious warning as well. And I want to look back at that as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. And it's a warning that comes with the lamp. Now, verse 21 says this. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? But whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, by the way, if we were worried that Jesus um, was somehow using parables in order to confuse people and mislead them, I know some people were worried about that last week, these verses should set your mind at rest. Because here we see the purpose of this teaching method. It's so that whatever is hidden in the parable might be disclosed to you and whatever's concealed brought out into the open 
And he says again, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. It means if you can hear, really listen. And Jesus, said back, in fact, in verse 33, it says he spoke the word to them in many similar parables as much as they could understand. So he's trying to teach for understanding. And he uses this really simple household image. We can all relate to this. It's the image of a lamp. And he says, you know, you don't have a lamp in a room in order to hide it underneath a bowl or put it, or you don't get a lamp and put it under the bed, do you? Unless you're playing hide and seek or something. What a waste of electricity that would be. You put the lamp on a stand so it gives light to all around it. We get that. But there's a really interesting detail here that Steve Bialy, Pastor Steve, uh, drew my attention to earlier this week. In the original language, it literally translates, does the lamp come to be under the bed? Does the lamp come to be under the bed? Now, that is a fascinating, strange little detail because lamps don't usually come into rooms, you know? Oh, it's you again. Lamps don't usually come into rooms. Normally, someone has to bring them. They are not capable of movement. But this strange detail is understandable if Jesus is really speaking about himself. He's the lamp. And that's almost certainly what he's talking about. He is the lamp who's come into our world. Jesus Christ is the one person who can illuminate our darkness. He explains our lives to us. He shows us what we really are. He explains reality to us. He reveals God himself to us. And he comes to bless us with his light. And the light of Jesus' purity and holiness shines into our darkness, the squalid corners of our lives that we don't want anyone else to see. He sees it. And he exposes us for what we really are. And that is terrifying. But he does so in order to bring us into the light and the warmth and love of his presence. At the cross, Jesus Christ made full atonement for all our sins. And he brings us out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. He's the lamp. And so he calls you now, friends, repent and believe this good news. Now, there's an important note here about our responsibility. I want to just pause on this for a minute before we come to the table. Look again at verse 24. And this is something that's somber, but we have to address it. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. What is this strange saying? Well, the context is all about hearing, isn't it? So when he says the measure you use is the measure you're going to get, he's talking about how we listen to God's voice. And if we, and what we get from God will depend on how well we listen to his voice. The more we truly believe and listen and obey what God says, the more God will give himself to us. The more blessing will come from him. The more understanding will come from him. The more of himself, more than you can imagine, you will gain by listening and using the best of your abilities. And that's the measure you use. And God will open the doors of heaven to you. But there's a warning here too. 
if you don't apply and act on what you've learned, even what you do know will fade away and you will lose it. And I've seen this time and again over the years. And those of you who've been around church have probably seen it too. People who had plenty given to them, they had understanding, they were taught well, they knew the Bible, they knew the gospel, they could answer all the questions in the quiz. And yet they didn't use it, and so they lost it. Even what you do know can fade away. Spiritual growth requires active involvement. It's not uh, a gospel of works. We know it's all been done for us, but we do have to do something. Don't go forward and you may lose it all together. So as we come to the Lord's table, let's reflect on what we're doing with the light that we've received. The lamp has come. Let's live in his light. Amen.